whatever uh, so-called time you took for me this morning, you generously gave back this morning. <laughs> and we appreciate your patience. It, it's, it's been good to be with you. Always enjoy being here and seeing your enthusiasm for the Lord. And thank you for all the kindnesses to my wife and I and the great fellowship supper last night and the many practical kindnesses of the saints here. And if you need to pray for us, we do end our trip that we've been in the East for about 19 days. We go home early tomorrow morning. On, uh, back to Oregon. We'll be there three or four weeks. I try to stay there 50% to help out locally in a very weak area and then come back east to uh, the Bahamas in February. Uh, but pray for open doors and open hearts there. Uh, we journey very early in the morning. Now, as most of you know, we've been studying some highlights from the book of Isaiah. Tonight I'd like to go to the most famous part of Isaiah. Let's go to chapter 52 to begin with. Isaiah chapter 52. I'm just going to read the opening line for now from Isaiah 52 and take you toward the end of the chapter to verse 13. Isaiah 52 and verse 13 and really for now just the first three words. Of verse 13. Behold my servant. Behold my servant. We've come across this word behold before in Isaiah. Started out Friday night in Isaiah 40 verse 9. Behold your God. Yesterday, behold God is my salvation. But now God wants your attention drawn to his servant. This phrase has already occurred in Isaiah. It was two times this exact phrase occurs. It was back in chapter uh, 42 where God said, Behold my servant. And it was a preview of the earthly ministry of Christ. That wouldn't be loud and boisterous and overthrowing government, but a bruised reed he wouldn't break. And the, the humble earthly ministry of Christ. But when we come to Isaiah 52 and we read that phrase again, that God wants you to gaze, to consider, to look. Behold my servant, it won't so much be the earthly ministry as the sufferings of Christ for sin. As Peter told us, the prophets wrote not only of the glory that should follow, they wrote of the sufferings of Messiah, 1 Peter 1.11. And this is a section that writes of the sufferings of God's Messiah, uh, as we'll see, Behold my servant. It'll mainly have to do if you go to chapter 53 and verse 10. Chapter 53 and verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Much of the chapter deals with his soul, the Messiah's soul, the Lord Jesus' soul, being made an offering for sin. Now in this section, the subject begins back in 52.13 and goes all the way through 53, which has 12 verses. If you count the last three verses of the subject in chapter 52 and the 12 verses of chapter 53, it of course totals 15 verses. And what you will see upon study that those 15 verses break into five stanzas of subject material of three verses each. You have three verses in chapter 52 and then another four sets of three verses in chapter 53 making five stanzas pointing you to the offering of Christ. Now as we will consider this, we're going to do by going backwards to the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
So, and see how that those picture models to do with the tabernacle will help us understand the offering of the Lord Jesus at the cross. So, so going backward, if you go back to Leviticus 7, but keep something in Isaiah, because we're going to be doing a comparison between the five offerings of the Jewish system and these five stanzas here and see how they relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you want to keep something in Isaiah 52 and 53. We're flipping back and forth. But go, go to Leviticus chapter 7, please. Leviticus chapter 7. And I'll take you down to verse 37. Leviticus 7 and verse 37. 737. Happens to be the type of airplane I fly out on tomorrow. But anyway. 737 says this. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the meat offering, or some will have meal offering, and of the sin offering, of the trespass offering, and of the consecrations, and of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. As far as offerings are concerned, verse 37 named five major offerings of the Jewish system. And that is the burnt offering, number one, the meal offering listed here, the sin offering, the trespass offering, and the peace offering. And those were five different types of offerings they were to bring. Now we know they were just pictures, types, figures of the offering of the Lord Jesus. Now as far as he's concerned, it was only one offering. You know Hebrews 10:12. But this man, when he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God. But to help you and I understand the depth, the power, the beauty of the one offering of the Son of God on the cross, God will give us a picture model of five offerings. It's so deep. And so he gives Israel five major offerings. Just like some of you sisters might have a diamond ring, and when it gets in the sunlight, well, you see there's all kind of facets to it, and different colors come. It's more than just one angle. It's brilliant. And so God, when he wants to show you the depths of the sacrifice of his son, will use five model offerings to help us understand. That's what he'll do. We're going to consider them in a minute. It's something like you're going to go away for a vacation and, uh, uh, to some resort, and you get a brochure, which will give you a picture of it. The brochure isn't the real resort. You don't go laying down on a brochure, you know. But, but you, hope, you start to see what the reality will be like. Page one, there's the beautiful mansion of, of the brochure but you, you, uh, of the resort. You open it up, and there's page two, and the snow-capped mountains like we have in Oregon. You, know? you see these beautiful snow-capped mountains. And page three shows you the 10 swimming pools. And page four, the 25 tennis courts. And page five, all the trails through the woods and horse riding trails. You go, my, what a place. This is worth going to. When God wants you to understand the one offering of a son, he will use five picture models of offerings. Now, if you wanted to, you could spend a whole week or two just studying the offerings. But we just have a few minutes ahead of us. So here's what we'd like to do tonight. As we look briefly at these five offerings in Leviticus, and then go back to Isaiah to see how they match the five stanzas of that section in Isaiah, all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, all we're going to do in the offerings tonight, that each offering will have a distinction compared to the other offering. There's going to be things that are similar. There's going to be all kind of details. We're not looking at that. But every offering will have some identity that the other offering won't. It will be different. There will be a unique thing about an offering that the other one doesn't. And as we look at these differences, they're going to show us some of the depth and power of the one offering of the Lord Jesus Christ.
So having said that, we're just going to scan through these five offerings and keep flipping back to Isaiah, only looking at their distinctions. So let's go to the first offering dealt with in Leviticus, and that would be chapter 1 of Leviticus, please. Chapter 1 of Leviticus, considering what is called the burnt offering. The burnt offering. Looking at verse 3, just for a minute here. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 3. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Now the reason this offering got the name burnt offering is because the whole thing was burnt. Once you skinned it, the priest would keep the skins. Once it was skinned, every piece of the animal, nothing saved, nothing eaten by anybody else, every piece of that animal, once it was skinned, was burnt unto God. It was all for God. And that's the unique thing of the burnt offering. It's the only offering that is completely burnt, and it goes up in ashes, it goes up in smoke, and only the ashes are left. You as the offerer would go home with nothing that day. But God was worth it to give him that. But, so look at verse 9, the uniqueness of the burnt offering. Verse 9, Leviticus 1. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. This would be a sweet aroma to God. But notice the priest was to burn all on the altar. Not just some of it was to burn all. This offering was not for you to eat, for you to enjoy, for the priest to enjoy. It was for God to enjoy. A sweet aroma unto the God. It was all for God. Now, looking at that unique feature of the burnt offering, there is an aspect of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that was all for God. It doesn't matter who liked it, who didn't like it, as long as his father liked it. Uh, keep your hand in Leviticus, because we're coming back. But let's go to Isaiah 52. Let's go to Isaiah 52. And let me read verses 13 through 15. And we've already started to read it, but going back to Isaiah 52, verse 13. And God says this, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And so he will be, but something happened first. Verse 14, And many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they have not heard shall they consider. And it takes you to the sufferings of the cross. Visage so marred more than any man, form more than the sons of man. The brutal sufferings of the Lord Jesus. Did you know how this stanza started out, these three verses? Behold my servant. He's not your servant. He's God's servant. Whatever he did, the Lord Jesus did out of love to the Father. Not to say he didn't love you and I. But it was first of all a dedication to God. You know Philippians 2, where he's called a bond servant. Took upon him the form of a servant. It says in Philippians 2.8 that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He not only obeyed all the way to dying, he obeyed the type of death, the sufferings of the cross. He's my servant. You know, as the Lord Jesus was headed toward Gethsemane or in Gethsemane, headed toward the cross, he made an interesting statement in uh, John 14.31. 
He said that the world may know that I love the Father. Arise, let us go hence. His first passion was, he was doing this, not because he enjoyed pain, because he loved the Father. Remember, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will. Well, it wasn't his will to suffer like that, but thine be done. As always, his will was subject to God. Love for the Father. Listen to Ephesians 5.2, and I think you'll see the connection. Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor or aroma. Connects it here. It's true it was for us, but it wasn't unto us. It was for us, he offered himself but unto God. You see, he never offered himself unto you. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It's what God required, a sacrifice for sin, a perfect sacrifice. And so that was presented to God the Father on our behalf. Make no mistake about it. But presented to God. So there's an aspect of the life and death of the Lord Jesus that was all for God. That burnt offering. Uh, as long as God was satisfied, that's what counted whether Israel understood it or not. And so the burnt offering answers to the stanza in Isaiah, Behold my servant. You know... The Lord said in John 5.30, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek the will of him that sent me. A man on earth controlled by heaven. He wouldn't preach one message. He wouldn't heal one person unless God told him to. He said, I don't do anything of myself. I only do what I hear. He was a servant. And when God said, go to the cross, he went. He went. Not my will, but thine be done. And so the burnt offering of the Lord of God finding someone on earth who was totally committed to him, even to the point of the cross. Burnt holy for God. And so we see his love and his heart for God that drove the blessed Lord Jesus Christ, answering to stanza number one, Behold my servant. Now having said that, I'd like you to go back. Leave Isaiah. And let's go back to the second offering in Leviticus, which would be chapter 2. Leviticus 2, as we take a quick look at the distinctions of the five offerings. And uh, it will be, if you have the King James Version, it will be a meat offering. But don't think of meat there as red meat, for the word meat means food. It could be any type of food. And as you read the description, it is the meal offering. It's made of grain, not of red flesh. Uh, look, look here at verse 1. Leviticus chapter 2, And when any will offer a meat or meal offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it, and put frankincense thereon. No meat here, it's fine flour. But it's going to smell good because there's frankincense upon it. You know what's different about the meal offering? It's the only one of the five offerings that has no blood. It's not an animal. It is a flower offering, a fine flower, consistent flower, even, and it will smell good. And it will go on to say that part of it would go on the altar, not the whole thing, like the burnt offering. The priest would only put a small memorial on that altar. It would reach the altar, but only part of it. But before it ever went to the altar, it could pass through the fire. It would go through a heat before it ever hit the altar. And so it would go through the heat. We'll look at it here in verse 4. Some of the options. Verse 4 of Leviticus 2. And if thou bring an oblation of a meat offering, bacon in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. 
And if thy oblation be a meat offering, bake it in a pan. It shall be a fine flour and leaven mingled with oil. And you could also put it in a frying pan, verse 7. Some of the options were that it would be baked or fried or however it would be. It would taste the fires of heat before it ever hit the fires of the altar. So what we have here is details on the preparation of the meal offering. It did not have any blood. It was only flour. And it would be the one offering that would go through the fire before it hit the fire of the altar. And what we have is details on the preparation of the meal offering. If it's going to be perfect in its presentation to God, God cares about the details in its preparation. It has to be perfect in its preparation. Now, that's the uniqueness. No blood. And it has to do with its preparation, the fires of its preparation. Having said that, just look at these unique characteristics. Let's go to the second stanza in this Isaiah section, which would be chapter 53 now, and verses 1 through 3. And it will again talk about Messiah, but it's the only section of three verses that don't talk about the cross. It talks about his life, his life, and the trials of his life, the fire of his life and what he had to go through. Look at it here. Look at Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. That's his life. He grew up as someone that had fruit and as a root out of a dry ground he hath no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him now watch verse 3 he is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we esteemed him not a rejected man in his ministry grew up before God delighting God this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I do always those things that please him. John 8, 29. But men rejected him. Men, he would get angry at the hardness of hearts. He went through the fire of being rejected and being labeled a wine-bibber, a glutton, and so on. And he went through the fires of life. And so we see him growing up here. Uh, we, we see the Lord in his life was perfect. Therefore, because in his preparation he was perfect. And his presentation of sacrifice will be perfect. If the sacrifice is to be accepted, the preparation has to be perfect. You see, the life of the Lord Jesus saves nobody. His teaching, his wonderful example, doesn't take away sin. It has to be his death. But, I'll tell you why his life is important. If his sacrifice is going to be accepted, his life had to be perfect. If the sacrifice is perfect, the presentation, the life has to be perfect. Let me give you an example. You go to a restaurant, and you order a steak. And if you're like me, you'll order it medium well. Okay, that's how you order it. And so you're sitting there, and 20, 30 minutes go by, and you think, I didn't mean it that well done. And you wonder what happened to your piece of steak. And you get up, and you walk over to the grill, and you see it fell on the floor. And Fido, the restaurant dog, is hovering over it. The waiter comes up. You see him pick up the steak, put some parsley on it on a, on a pewter plate. You hustle back to your table, they walk over and they say, Bon Appetit. Are you going to receive the presentation of that steak? You say, no, no, no. It was contaminated in its preparation. It's not good enough for a presentation. And you'll return it. You see, the Old Testament, when a sacrifice was brought to God, Leviticus 22:21, it shall be perfect to be accepted. Couldn't be have a blemish or blind. 
And, and so the, the life of the Lord Jesus, if it's going to have power in his death, which take away sins, that's to be a perfect sacrifice. So he had to live a life and prove himself sinless. And the only reason his death has power to take away sin is because he was perfect. And so the gospel writers will tell you about that. Paul will say, speaking of the Lord Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5.21, who knew no sin, didn't know it. Peter will say in 1 Peter 1.22, who did no sin. The writer to the Hebrews in 4.15 will tell you he was without sin. John will tell you in 1 John 3.5, in him is no sin. And so while his life doesn't really forgive sins, it made him qualified because he was perfect in his presentation that frankens as a life that grew up before God and satisfied God. God would therefore accept his sacrifice. His preparation was perfect, therefore his presentation would be perfect. And so you have the one offering, the meal offering, that draws you to the, to, to the quality of what's being offered and the fires that it had to pass through first. And it brings you to the life and rejection of the Lord Jesus, a man of sorrows on earth. Yet he was faithful to God. And because he was that perfect man, he became the perfect sacrifice. Such as in the meal offering, and such as in the second stanza of Isaiah, verses 1 through 3, dealing with his man of sorrows in his life, not on the cross yet, growing up before him. And why that's important. Having said that, there's a third offering. And so let's go back to Leviticus, and this time chapter 3. And then we'll be back to Isaiah. Go, going to Leviticus, and this time chapter 3. And this will be the peace offering. This also is voluntary. The first three are voluntary offerings. You could bring them, but you didn't have to. Chapter 3 and verse 1. And if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, he shall offer it of the herd. Whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. We're back to a blood sacrifice. Now there's something unique about the peace offering. Well, first of all, it's a name. It's a peace offering. It means you and God were at peace. You were not bringing it for a specific sin. You made a vow to God and kept it and he did something for you and you want to thank him. Because you're in fellowship with God. You're having communion with Him. So in this thanksgiving, you bring this offering to show your appreciation. Because you're at peace with God and He's working for you. It's called a peace offering. But the uniqueness of it, God gives further instructions called the law of the offerings. It's when He gives the law of this offering in chapter 7 of Leviticus. So jump ahead just a bit. To Leviticus chapter 7, where He'll give the minute destruction instructions of the peace offering. And look at verse 11, and you'll see what's different about it. Leviticus 7, verse 11. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which ye shall offer unto the Lord. Well, here's the law. Uh, uh, verse 12, if he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with a sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mingled with oil. He combines it with others. And, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil and cakes mingled with oil, a fine flour fried beside the cakes and so on. Look at verse 14. And he shall offer one out of the whole oblation for a heave offering unto the Lord, and it shall be the priest that sprinkleth the blood of the peace offerings. Now watch verse 15. It's for thanksgiving and things like that. Verse 15, the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten. The same day that it is offered, he shall not leave any of it until the morning. 
But if the sacrifice of his offering uh, be a vowel or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offereth his sacrifice, and the morrow also the remainder of it shall be eaten. Some of the offerings, the priests were allowed to eat part of it. You, as the worshiper of the offer, could not eat them, except the peace offering. It shall be eaten. You, the offerer, could eat part of that. It wasn't like the burnt offering, burnt holy for God, <laughs> unto God. It was part of it went on the altar for God. The priest got part of it. But you, as the worshiper, it shall be eaten. Know what that is showing? That you have fellowship with God. This offering has brought you into fellowship with God. You know, when you eat with somebody, it's usually not an enemy, you're friends with that person. We've eaten with a few of you this weekend, it's because we're friends. You've heard me use this example before to show how eating is connected with fellowship. A young man asks a certain young woman out to dinner. Uh, is all he's interested in is filling her stomach? That was the case. He can mail her McDonald's coupons and say bon appetit. But he wants to get to know her because over dinner there's fellowship, there's rapport. And so eating together is a place of fellowship. You're at peace. It shall be eaten, showing God answered a person's prayer. They love the Lord and they're sitting at the same table with God, rejoicing in their God who rejoiced in grace over them. It's called the peace offering. It shall be eaten. With that in mind, the uniqueness of the peace offering, let's go back to Isaiah 53. And uh, look at the third stanza. And it will be verses 4 through 6. It might not surprise you, brothers and sisters, in verses 4 through 6 it will be the only stanza with the word peace in it. Stanza number 3, like the third offering. So let's see it here, verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, and we're back to the cross now, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, or that is punishment, of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That because of the sacrifice of Christ, you not just escape hell, you have peace with God. Is that the message of the New Testament? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 4.1. It's just not a peace that's the absence of fighting. Sometimes we think, well, they're not fighting, they're at peace. It's a peace of friendship, a peace of fellowship. We have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1.7. Fellowship with God, we're reconciled to God. Uh, uh, as you come to the Lord's table, listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup which we bless is it not the communion or fellowship of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is it not the communion or fellowship of the body of Christ. And so you and God sit at the same table and you see what he did for you and you pour out your hearts to him like we did at the Lord's Supper this morning uh, connected with the Lord's table. It is a place of partaking. You eat the bread. You drink the cup. <laughs> and you're showing fellowship with God that this gospel has brought you into peace with God where you don't have to fear him. You can have a relationship with him. The peace offering 
the chastisement of our peace was upon him. What his sacrifice has accomplished, far more than saving you from hell, of giving you and I peace with God and fellowship, a relationship. That's the uniqueness of the third section. It deals with peace. But there were five offerings, weren't there? So let's go back to number four now in Leviticus chapter four. And this is the sin offering, and all we want to look at is the uniqueness of it, not all the details. Leviticus chapter 4, and this one was mandatory. When you sinned, you had no choice because God is holy, you had to bring it. And depending what class you were among the people would determine the details of your offering, but we'll just take the common people here. If you'll go down to verse 27, verse 27. Let me change my mind here and take you earlier in the chapter where a little more details are given of this sacrifice and, and look at verse 10. Uh, so I can connect it with what it is, I'm going to read verse 3 so I keep moving the verses up. But, but look at chapter 4 and verse 3. If the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin which he has sinned a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. All right, this is to cover a sin in the eyes of God. And there'll be bloodshed. It's an animal sacrifice. But because it's a sin offering, just a little part of it is taken out and put on the altar. It's the least part of any animal that's put on the altar. Now, uh, break in here at verse 9, chapter 4 and verse 9. And the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver with the kidneys, it shall be taken away as it was taken off the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar of burnt offering. So a few of the animal parts do reach the altar and are burned unto God. But how about the rest of the carcass and all the other pieces and bones? Well, it tells you, verse 11, And the skin of the bullock and all his flesh, with his head and with his legs, and his inwards and his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp, unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out shall he be burnt. It's the one offering that the majority of the animal was taken outside the camp, the sanctuary of God, the tabernacle, and all the tents around it. And you would take it out from the presence of God to a clean place and that sin offering, the majority of that with its skin and everything else, you would burn it outside the camp. Why was that? Because it was a sin offering. It was bearing the sin. And because God is holy and he lived in the middle of that camp with his people, God could not have something bearing sin in his presence. So other than the portion that was to send up to God, the rest of that animal would not be burned on the altar like the burnt offering. The rest of that animal would be taken outside the camp, out of the presence of God, and there it would be burnt because it was a sin offering. The unique feature of the sin offering, the movement of the carcass of the animal that would end up outside the camp. Well, having said that, let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 53, and we looked at the uniqueness of the sin offering. And we come to stanza number four, which is verses seven through nine. Stanza number four, and it will take you to the cross but this stanza, it shouldn't surprise you, will show you the movement of the body of the Lord Jesus once he died and as he died. Look, look at verse 7. And he was oppressed, and he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, 
as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. In prison, then the cross. But more than that, look at verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He died and he was buried. And like dead criminals, he, he was buried. He made his grave with the wicked. So it shows the movement of the body of the Lord Jesus from prison and being judged to being cut off, to being buried and out of sight. You know, as you study the Lord Jesus, his sacrifice, it would matter to God where it happened. As he bore your sin and my sin in his own body, he's the sin offering. You know 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sin in his own body on the tree. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was made sin, not made a sinner, but the whole sin question fell on him. When it did, do you know where he was crucified? Not in the temple area of Jerusalem. Not in, in the temple of God, the city that bore his name. He was drugged outside the city walls, outside the gates, the camp of Israel. And as a criminal on a hill where criminals went, he was crucified. Listen to Hebrews 13, 12. Comparing his sacrifice, if you read the details, to the sin offering. And those bodies taken outside the camp, it links it. I'm not going to read all those verses. You can read them on your own in Hebrews 13. But verse 12 says this. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Therefore let us go forth unto him without the camp, it goes on to say. You see, the Lord Jesus did, was not some hero's death on a battlefield. It wasn't some state funeral where they marched with the army and that, and everybody bowed down and honored as it went through the streets of Jerusalem. He was taken to the criminal's place outside the city walls where rejects are. And he was crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem because he was a sin offering. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The eyes of God could not look on him in those dark hours because he was burying our sin and the uniqueness of the sin offering. It went through the fire, but most of the fire was outside the camp. The Lord Jesus died for you and I outside the city walls of the camp of the temple and Israel because he was made sin for you and I and he took our sin. He is our uh, uh, sin offering. It answers to the fourth offering, and he was buried, wasn't he? <laughs> Made his grave with the wicked. And so we see what happened to the Lord Jesus. He not only died for our sins, he was buried uh, because he was made sin. Having said that, there's one more offering that God chose to have, and that takes us back to Leviticus, this time chapter 6. This time chapter, and there's one more stanza in Isaiah. We go back to Leviticus, and this time chapter 6, and we come across what is called the trespass offering. The trespass offering. Uh, it's part of it's in chapter 5, but part of it's in chapter 6. Uh, just to show you what we're dealing with, look at verse 6. 6 6. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish. So we're dealing with a trespass offering. Now, we talked about a sin offering. You say, what's the difference between a sin offering and a trespass offering? No, there's a difference. Sin means I just missed the mark. I just come short. It might even be ignorance. I might not even know I did it, but I did it. 
In fact, if you'll go back for a minute to chapter 4 on the sin offering and look here at verse 1. Chapter 4 and verse 1 on the sin offering, I should say verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, if a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and shall do against any of them. So the sin offering, you, you might, I didn't even know it was wrong, but now I found out it's wrong. Ignorance is no excuse, and you needed a sin offering. The trespass offering is stronger. It will cover ignorance, but it will cover more than that. You ever see a sign that says no trespassing? You say, I want to, though you step over the line. You know exactly what you're doing. There's more responsibility in a trespass. So looking at Leviticus 6, as we work our way up to the uniqueness of it, I want to show you verse 2. Verse 2. And if a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord and lie unto his neighbor and that which was delivered him to keep, or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor, or hath found out that which was lost, and lieth concerning it, and sweareth falsely in any of these that a man doeth, sinning therein. So now you know what you're doing. For example, your neighbor is going on a cruise. Uh, may I leave my Mustang in your driveway? I don't want to leave it in mine. May, may I leave it in your driveway? Yeah, certainly you may leave it. Enjoy your cruise. You decide to take the Mustang out for a ride and you crash the thing. And the neighbor comes back and he sees the whole roof crash and he said, what happened? You say, there was a tornado. You wouldn't believe it. It came through, a tree fell on. You lied concerning something you were sworn to keep. Deceived your neighbor. You have trespassed against him and you needed an offering for it. Now, look, look at the uniqueness as it starts. Look at verse 4. Then it shall be, because he has sinned, and is guilty that he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he had deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered to him to keep, or the lost thing which was found. This trespass offering, there had to be full restitution. You say, uh, your Mustang's destroyed. I'm sorry. That's nice you're sorry. You've got to buy him a new Mustang. Uh, there has to be rested. What the damages? He sin hurts people. It violates people. There has to be damages. There has to be a restitution to the damage of sin. And so, in the trespass offering, there had to be restitution. But more than that, look at verse five. Or all that about which he hath sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in the principal. That's the full amount and shall add the fifth part more thereto, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth in the day of his trespass offering. And he brought the blood sacrifice. Now it's even deeper. Sin damages. But you not only have to restore the full amount damage, you've got to add a 20% tax, shall we say? We call it pain and suffering today. You've got to add 20%. So in the trespass offering, the person that was sinned against ended up with more in the end then he lost in the beginning because of that fifth, that 20% added. So is it worth it to the person to go through all this? You say to somebody, you say, you know that $50,000 Mustang that was just totaled and crashed? Yeah. Well, they had to buy you a new one. So, so I guess everything, you're happy. It's been restored. That's wonderful. You'll say, I'm not really happy. I mean, it's a hassle going to back to the salesman and all the time I lost, uh, you know, 50,000, you know, I'm glad I got it back, but, you know, I had to pay a price to get it back. 
So I'm, I can't say I'm happy, but now you add a fifth. You have to, beside the $50,000, you now write the person a $12,500 check, if I'm doing my math right, or, or a fifth would be 10000 excuse me. You have to write them a $10,000 check besides the 50000 Now you say to the person, are you happy it happened? Well, you know all things do work together for good. But <laughs> you're better off than you started. It's not only restitution, it's something is added. So the person ends up with more in the trespass offering than they ever lost. Let me take you to the last stanza of Isaiah, chapter 53, please. As we get to the sacrifice of Christ, another aspect of it. And the last stanza, of course, would be verses 10 through 12, those final three verses. It too will take you to the cross, but look in what way. Verse 10, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Let me stop right there. See that word offering for sin? If you care to study the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is a sham. The same exact word we already read in Leviticus 6, Leviticus 7 for trespass offering. Thou shalt make his soul a trespass offering for sin. It could literally read. It's the same Hebrew word translated trespass offering. So the clue's right there. It's spelled out for us. We're dealing with a trespass offering. It goes on to say, I'm going to reread verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an asham trespass offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now look what else. Look at verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Not only justifying us, but he gets a spoil, victor spoil. And the Lord Jesus takes the victories of the cross and divides them with the great, the strong, those strong in faith, strong in the grace we read about. The overcomer, the saved. That, 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 that what we have in the sacrifice of Christ, that God gets more out of us now than he ever had in Adam and Eve. Let me explain what I mean. First of all, Christ in dying for our sins, a messianic psalm says in Psalm 69, 4, then I restored that which I took not away. We were separated from God. He just didn't forgive us. He has reconciled us back to God. He's brought children back to God. He's restored us to God so God can accept us. Reconciled to God. Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. God has a restored humanity called the sons of God, and Christ has restored us back to God. He's given God restitution and meeting the claims of death on the cross. He's brought estranged, separated humanity back into a relationship with God. You know what? In the gospel, God gets more in the children of God now than he ever got before. Adam and Eve sinned. You know what it never records about Adam? He was made in a perfect environment. He was intelligent. He could, he could name animals. It never records that he loved God. In fact, the minute his wife handed him the fruit, there's no battle recorded of even what will God think. He just took it and ate it and sinned. 
doesn't ever record it that the man loved God. But now that we have been in sin, and God, Christ has died for sinners, and we've tasted the depths of sin to some degree, and yet he has still loved us. He died for the ungodly, to whom much is forgiven, much is loved. We know something of the love of God. And you know, we're being conformed to the image of his Christ, image of his Son. We're far ahead of Adam. You see, Romans 8.29 says, For whom he did for no, them did he also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that we love what Christ loves. His Spirit lives in us. It's called the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. We start to love what he loves. We hate what he hates. We start to react like he reacts. He has, Christ is only the firstborn among many brethren. Christ-like ones. God has ended up more in the gospel than he ever lost in Adam and Eve. That fifth has been added. The very life of the Lord Jesus. He had intelligent people, but they never had a love for him. Because if you love him, you keep his commandments. And they didn't even have a heart for that. Adam didn't. But in Christ, he has a people not only restored to himself, a people being conformed to his image. So you ask God, are you glad sin came into the world? And I'm just paraphrasing. This was all planned before the foundation of the world. That he will get a people like Christ. He will get far more than he ever lost in the gospel of Christ. He'll divide the spoil with the strong. The victories of the cross are given to Christians. Christ in you is one of them. The hope of glory. He's our trespass offering. Forgives us all trespasses. Restores us back to God. And then makes us into his image. Far more than the law could do or anything else. The power of the gospel. And so in the five stanzas of Isaiah 53, they'll answer to the five uniqueness of the offerings of Israel, which are only pictures, which points us to the reality of that one blessed offering. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God. May God give you good understanding, a heart for what happened on that cross, prophesied in Isaiah, matching the offerings, fulfilled in our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. Thought Christ might be a nice subject to end on, huh? I know the time's gone, but you guys believe in liberty here. Any brother have a comment? Any, any brother want to say something on the, tonight, the series, something from the scripture? Hopefully, nothing I have to clarify, but you never know. Okay. I don't see any hands. Let's, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we stand in thy presence because of that one offering of the Lord Jesus. We didn't need five in him, but he was everything it pictured. And we see it in type form. We see it in prophecy form in Isaiah. We see it in reality in the New Testament and doctrine. And so we pray that every believer here standing on that offering that sacrifice of Christ. And that we're growing and understanding what it is. Not only forgives, but our sin restores us and adds more, adds Christ in us and brings us into fellowship and was accepted in, in, in the sacrifice because he was perfect in his life and yet it was all unto thee. And thou art satisfied. To see the trail of the soul is satisfied. And Father, if thou art satisfied with Christ, then of course we should be and rest in him. We ask a blessing on this assembly from the youngest to the oldest in the wisdom they need for decisions that honor thee in the growth here we see the many young families and we pray for them and their children to be preserved from evil and 
get saved young and live for thee, and the parents will know how to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Think of the young married couples, and they'll know how to model their marriage after Christ and the church, not without difficulty, but, but looking unto him as the example of oneness and glorifying thee. Pray for the older ones in the assembly, and sometimes they can't do as much as they used to, Father, but yet their prayer, their example, their involvement, that they have sustained all the years with tragedy and trials, and yet love thee without speaking a word. It's a dynamic message of the keeping faithfulness. And the elders and the deacons and the different gifts just to guide and sustain them. And so, Lord, we just commit one another in this God of Isaiah, this God that now has a servant, the Lord Jesus. And we just commit one another. Thy word will just build us up as we go forth in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving, Father. Amen. Thank you and good to be with you.